Welcome to the Not All Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelzang. And as part of our Newsmaker Briefing interview series, our guest today is David Andelman. David Andelman is a returning guest and is here today to give us an up-to-the-minute glimpse into the invasion of Ukraine. David Andelman is a veteran foreign correspondent for CNN News, author and commentator who contributes frequently to CNN on global affairs. David Andelman is a member of the Board of Contributors of USA Today. David Andelman served for more than seven years as editor and publisher of World Policy Journal. David Andelman was executive editor of Forbes, a domestic and foreign correspondent for The New York Times, also located in Southeast Asia as bureau chief, based in Bangkok and the East European Bureau. He also has been based in Belgrade. He knows this region He knows Russia. He knows all of this area very well. David Andelman worked for a time at CBS News, where he served for seven years as the Paris correspondent. Andelman followed as a Washington, D.C. correspondent for CNBC, news editor of Bloomberg News and business editor of the New York Daily News. In the course of his career, David Andelman has traveled through and reported for more than 85 countries, a veteran correspondent, to say the least, and it is absolutely fascinating to talk to him. David Andelman has that mindset, as does his book, and the title, again, of that book is A Red Line in the Sand, Diplomacy, Strategy, and the History of Wars That Might Still Happen. But David Andelman has that mindset as we try to better understand this very important global security issue and time, we need to do it right now, especially to understand Ukraine, Putin's mindset, where China is, and much more that we will talk about during our interview today with David Andelman. This will be a fascinating interview. It'll go fast. We'll talk about the Red Lines Project. We'll talk about Putin. We'll talk about the world in a post-pandemic state. So please join us. You will love this interview and welcoming to the Not Old Better Show, CNN's David Andelman. Uh, the only other thing you should know about is in probably in uh, less than an hour, you may have already been starting, um, the um, Emmanuel Macron is going to announce that he's running for president, re-election for president of France. It's a formality, but uh, t- tomorrow is actually the deadline. If he hadn't announced by tomorrow, he wouldn't have been allowed to be on the ballot, believe it or not, but he's been so, he's been kind of preoccupied, you know, lately. So, um, but the, the French presidential election race is now set as of, you know, like an hour from now. So that's kind of an interesting thing. If you want to get into that. Interesting. Yeah, very timely. That's good to know, too. And uh, I got to believe that we need this kind of consistent leadership right now throughout the world. Is well, that, that is that kind of your... Yeah, that, that's it. And, and you know, he really is kind of a Europe statesman at this point. I, I did a, um, a commentary for um, CNN a few weeks ago saying that, you know, he's really kind of become uh, the West Putin whisperer. Mm-hmm. Um, he's talked to Putin more than, more than any other single leader. He also has a very good sense of what he's like more than any other single leader. That is how he's changed dramatically in the last three or four years. It's no longer the Putin that he knew when he first became uh, President uh, Macron. So um, at any rate, we can talk about any of that if you like. Good. Well, I like it. I like it all. Well, good. Well, let's just jump right in. David Andelman, welcome back to the program. It's great to talk to you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I always enjoy our conversations. You are just so on point with so much. Let's start, though, with your book, um, because honestly, I think a red line in the sand is just it, – it's just ideal. Give us an update and, and this idea of the book, this idea that you know, where does dis- 
diplomacy end and war begin is just absolutely on our minds right now. And we, we've seen the fallout, perhaps, from, from the lack of. Well, it is, you know, and, and what I really like to get across in the book is, is a sense of then and now and the future. So it's uh, diplomacy strategy and the history of wars that might still happen where they are now again happening. But in each case, I've tried to trace the history of red lines. And many of them go back, Many, some of them go back, actually, believe it or not, in the Middle East, like the Bronze Age, they're effective red lines. And um, the red lines around Russia are the, perhaps the most toxic lately, especially, but for a very long time. And they've been the ones that have been changing most dramatically. You know, they changed enormously in 1917 to 1925, when the Soviet Union was really being formed. Um, they suddenly expanded to include a whole lot of formerly independent countries, kingdoms, principalities, what have you. Uh, Ukraine was obviously one of them. It was conquered by the the Reds, the, the communists, uh, in around 1922 in a, in a series of bloody battles. It was just, uh, there were horrific battles. It was a whole civil war. There were about six different armies fighting over Ukraine back then. And, uh, and eventually they, they all morphed into one big red line surrounding the Soviet Union. And of course, when the Berlin Wall came down, communism ended. All of these, many of these countries split off into independent nations, Russia at the core, but all of the three Baltic states, um, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, they became members of NATO, actually. Then you have on the south, you have Ukraine, you have Georgia. I was actually on with um, Georgian television uh, last week. Uh, they're, they're really quite frantic now, but what's, where they might be next uh, after this. Um, uh, so um, the, these red lines now, the smaller red lines have surrounded each of these countries that are trying desperately to protect their independence. And this is something that Putin doesn't want. He wants to see the old red lines restored. So I guess in some respects, my book is very prescient and very important at the moment. The whole concept has become critical to the survival of, of so many different kinds of people. Yeah, these red lines, they're so important to countries. They're so important to leaders, but they are very important to citizens and voters. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, because each one of these is a reason for each of these countries existing. Look, um, we don't think much about, we never thought much about Ukraine, but it was a democracy for, you know, at least the last 40 years or so, 50 years, 40 years. So um, it's something that we really should care deeply about. We should care about democracy surviving and it was prospering as well. Not only that, um, it has a ports on the Black Sea, which is a very important outlet to the Mediterranean in turn, uh, shipping and commerce to, to America. The um, oil pipe, the gas pipelines, uh, some of them go right through Ukraine into Western Europe, carrying gas that uh, will eventually, you know, help build cars. Uh, the Mercedes or the um, the Audis or whatever um, are all reliant for some of their products on things that transit through Ukraine. And and, and it's been, but above all, it's been a country that has a great history that and a civilization that Americans should care deeply about because, look. My my parent my grandparents actually came to America through the port of Odessa, which is in in, in one of the great uh, Black Sea ports of, of Ukraine. They started in Bessarabia. They took a train from Bessarabia, one of the shtetls there in uh, near near Romania, across some Moldova, which is another country that is trying desperately to keep its independence. 
to Odessa and then got on a boat and came to Ellis Island and eventually to, to Boston and eventually I was born there. So <laughs> so it's a, it's a part of the world that we really should care deeply mm-hmm. about if we just look back at our own history. And when we think about this, because you, you, you have been talking about this, we're really on the verge of Emmanuel Macron uh, announcing his uh, uh, re-election campaign for president of, of France. And I know that you have recently talked about a meeting between Putin and Macron where Macron just felt like Putin was off a little bit, struck him as being a little different. What, what is that all about? Well, Macron is, is, I mean, particularly he's head of Europe, believe it or not, for six months, from January through June of this year. Um, there's a rotating presidency among the 27 nations of the European Union. Each one gets six, six, six months in the chair. So he's been basically president of Europe for, for the last six months. But even before that, he really had a sense that he, he was, his mission was kind of to unify Europe. And, and this was a theme that, that he began five years ago as president, something that he had been really pushing for, pushing very hard against Donald Trump, who was not in favor of that. And now, you know, more, more, more freely uh, since Joe Biden came in. But um, during this whole period, he's had an enormous impact in the he really has been able to talk with Putin on a regular basis. He's talked with Putin 16 times, believe it or not, and visited him at least once just since January of this year. I called him in a, um, a, a commentary I did for CNN. I do a column for CNN uh, regularly. A couple of weeks ago, I called him. He's, he's become the West Putin whisperer. He really is someone that <laughs> who, who understands Putin very well. And who Putin, believe it or not, really feels comfortable with, at least it seems so. And what he what he's told us, and and or through one of his people who I talk with regularly in the Elysee, um, he's really become lately concerned that Putin's changed somehow, and he's not the same person that that Macron got to know three, four, five years ago. That he's really gotten warped, and and probably a lot having to do with COVID. Putin, who was seven, just turned seventy, turning seventy years old. He, he's, he's paranoid about COVID. And, and uh, the result was that he has, he has isolated himself so dramatically in the last couple of years since COVID first arrived. And COVID hit the Soviet Union or the, or the Russia very hard. Um, and they do not have a very good vaccine themselves. They have not been able to buy very good vaccines. It's just ripped through Russia, even Moscow, uh, like, a, like, a, like a firestorm. And he's been crazed about that. The result is he's he's holed up in the Kremlin. We've seen some pictures of him when he met Macron the other day, <laughs> last week, a couple of weeks ago, he's sitting at the two ends of this clownishly wrong table. It looks like something like a cartoon, right? <laughs> and 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 but but that's the problem is even when he's meeting with his own advisors, and there are, I have pictures of that that have been put out on the Kremlin website before the Kremlin website, by the way, got hacked and is now on a commission. But um, the uh, there are pictures of him. Even with his own advisors, they're sitting way down the other end of the table and he's up here alone. That is symbolic, I think, of the problem that the world is facing now. Putin is completely isolated. He has no real touch. He's lost touch with the world and he is, he is revving up his own ambitions, his own craziness, that, and there's nobody there to kind of neutralize it. Mm-hmm. And that's very frightening. I think this is frightening. I think it's frightening on, on so many levels because we – we probably should have seen the hints from Putin uh, leading up to some of this, and maybe we should have done more to blunt Russians, Russia's aims. 
Do you think we're responding now appropriately? Should we be doing more? Is it enough? Maybe tell us about SWIFT and what that might bring about to, you know, this multi-billionaire's value. I'm talking about Putin. Sure. Well, SWIFT is the way you transfer money around the world. So if you – I have a little apartment in Paris, a very small little apartment, but I have to send a 1,000 thousand euros a month every every month over to pay for it. And, and I, I send it from my, my account at Chase. Um, when I do that, um, that that thousand um, dollars is is telegraphed. Um, basically, it's um, is transferred through the SWIFT system to my bank BNP in, in Paris. And there are eleven thousand banks all over the world that use this system of money transfer. It's basically the only viable way of money moving between countries anywhere in the world. So what the West has now done is it's taken twenty five largest banks in in Russia off of the SWIFT system. They can't use it anymore, which means that they're basically handcuffed. They can't send any money. They can't get any money. Now, what I would like to see is I'd like to see every bank in Russia taken off because, my goodness, if there are, you know, another 50 banks and smaller banks in Russia and, and you know, Putin or his, his uh, henchmen say, well, you know, we can't use Burbank or BTB to, to the biggest bank. Let's make this other, these other banks that are still on SWIFT. They'll be our, our way into the world. We got to take the whole Russian system off, off SWIFT. That's number one. The second thing we have to do is we have to take away, um, you know, we have to take away his, his, his money train. We have to take away his means of really still maintaining some kind of viable economy, which is to say we have to uh, put him under a, a strict embargo on oil sanctions, oil and natural gas, because that is the thing that will keep Putin going basically for as long as he needs to keep going, because it's just that is his that's his piggy bank. Um, and it's a constantly flowing piggy bank and he'll always be getting money for it. So we have to we, those are the two things we need. To, if we do those two things, it will basically strangle Russia, strangle Putin. He will not be able to wage war. He will be able to become basically a a pariah and a failed nation, failed state. And he's going to have to find some way of getting out of that. Well, your network, CNN, is reporting that the second round of negotiations between uh, Russia and and Ukraine are going to begin. Where are we headed with the negotiations, do you think, David Endelman? Oh, I think they're kind of a joke at this point. I mean, Putin doesn't really seriously want to negotiate in that respect. Um, not at all. Uh, you know, I, I, this is trying, kind of him trying to say that to his own people, well, you see, I have made an effort and there are those, um, uh, calls them nat- neo-Nazis, they don't want to negotiate in good faith, you know. It, it, but, you know, they have to go through with it. I mean, at some point, probably someone, they are going to have to sue for peace, but we're not there yet. And, and so I think... Uh, I wouldn't put whole much much faith in those, frankly. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us a little bit about where China is in all of this, because clearly Putin and Xi stood together during the Olympics. I'm curious about what you you make of that uh, kind of relationship, and that seemed to be a bit of a statement to the world. Where is China now? Well, China is kind of between a rock and a hard place, if you will. On the one hand, I think deep in their heart of hearts. They'd love to see Putin succeed because they have a very similar situation with Taiwan. They would love to be able to just, you know, roll right over Taiwan militarily, which they probably could do beginning tomorrow, although it would be another 
series of bloody battles, believe me, the Taiwanese are not going to give in very easily. They want to take Taiwan back and make it part of China. Uh, and they are already doing that pretty effectively in Hong Kong, but Taiwan is a whole different story. And uh, I think they would really like to be able to do that. That is one of the reasons why they, you know, are trying to keep some kind of a, uh, shall we say, a, a, a road open to, to, to Russia. They want to kind of learn from them, if you will. At, at the same time, they don't want to be the ones to um, absolutely negate this. So they haven't vetoed any of the, the issues in the, um, the, the um, um, and they haven't gone away along with, with sanctions. I mean, the issues in, in the Security Council of the United, United Nations, they haven't, they haven't issued a veto. Russia so far is the only Security Council nation that has vetoed anything having to do with an, uh, you know, a, a slap on the wrist or, or anything else that the UN is capable of administrating. China has not, has not vetoed those, which I think in itself is very interesting. China also did manage to bring a concession out of Putin not to invade during the Olympics. They didn't want the world's attention taken away from their Olympics. All of that is very true. There's a final thing, though, that a lot of people haven't really noticed, and that is China has relations with Europe, trade relations, particularly economic relations, with Europe, with the United States, that it does not want to compromise in any way because that will destroy the Chinese economy. And they can't. They simply can't afford to become a pariah nation like Russia is becoming a pariah nation, or like North Korea, right next door to China, is become has become a pariah nation. They can't afford that because that would be a catastrophe for the entire communist system. The communist system in China is based very much like the Russian communist system on the fact that we can make life better for you than capitalism can. And for a long time, that's how Putin stayed in power. You know, you haven't had it so good. You never had it so good under the Soviets. And they didn't. I have a, um, I had a very, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Russia uh, as for, for, C, for, um, for, CNN, uh, for CBS. I was a correspondent in Paris and went off and to spell the guy in, in Russia when he couldn't, Moscow, when he couldn't take it anymore. Uh, and there was a wonderful um, assistant that we had in the bureau, translator, uh, Boris. And, and I had dinner with Boris um, many years later, actually just a couple of years ago in, in Moscow. And he said, you know, the difference between the Russian, the Soviet system and now is, and the Soviet system, we had plenty of money and nothing in the stores to buy. He says, now we have no money and plenty of things in the stores to buy. Well, at this point, what's happening now is Putin is making sure that there is no money and nothing in the stores to buy. So people are going to start saying, hmm. Maybe things were actually even better under the Soviet system than even today. That's not good for Putin. Well, David Andelman, we are catching up to you very much in real time on this situation. I've seen on your network today images of Ukrainian citizens offering captured Russian soldiers tea and bread, um, connections to these Russian soldiers' families via video chat, and really all manner of compassion. We're going to talk about Mikhail Zygar in just a little bit, but Mikhail has written that the outbreak of the war that Russia started against Ukraine is a disgrace. Are we starting to see the sentiment change, even with the Russian soldiers who aren't buying into this invasion, especially now after being treated so well upon capture? Well, not only treated well on capture, but treated not so well when they're making war. It's interesting because a lot of them are young kids. They had no idea that they were going to be invading another country. They thought they were just going down for some routine maneuvers along the uh, southern border of Russia. And then all of a sudden, 
they're an invasion force, and they're an invasion force against their own their own people. I mean, Slavs. Some of them, many of them, have even have relatives in the distant past who came from U- Ukraine or back and forth. I mean, they're they're being they're eighteen, nineteen, twenty year old kids who are they're they're being forced to to fight against you know people who should be they should be basically you know sitting down to to to, to Easter dinner with in, in another month or so. Um, and and they're, and they're, and they're having to and they're destroying their homes and their families and the livelihood of this country, and I think a lot of them are saying, I shouldn't be here. What am I doing here? So I think that's one of the real weapons that um, that Ukraine is wielding. In that it, it doesn't want to destroy this Russian army. It basically wants to co-opt it in many ways, which uh, is is um, is very telling. I think in, in the long run. It's going to make it that much, many, many, uh, that much more difficult for for them to really control any Ukraine that they might uh, subdue. You write this wonderful piece uh, on your site, Andelman Unleashed. I want to put links up to that where our audience can find that information about Andelman Unleashed and all of your work there. And you've written and it's free. Subscriptions. It's free. Yeah, it's free. This is a a wonderful resource, I think, for people to stay up to the minute. And and David, you write so well. But recently, you published a letter by Mikhail Zygar. Am I pronouncing that last name right? Zygar. Zygar. Very well. Yep. Thank you. And Mikhail writes that he and and his current situation is he's fled Moscow. Uh, really after about two hours' notice, he was being targeted for arrest and conviction as a traitor to the Russian state. He's written this one statement that the outbreak of war that Russia started against Ukraine is a disgrace. This particular sentence will be a 20-year prison term. But tell us about Mikhail and uh, and tell us about Andelman Unleashed. Again, this is free. We will put links up to where our audience can find it. But the, I just thought this was fa- a fascinating piece. And this just brings us, again, very current, right up to the minute as things are taking place in real time. Well, Andelman Unleashed started as a, um, a weekly um, a blog on the uh, covering the, the the French presidential election campaign where I was posting every Sunday. And, and it's really it's, 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 it's gotten much more it's, it's gotten much, much denser and much more. Uh, interesting in many ways, it meant much more dimensional um, in in the weeks since I started it. Uh, and the latest is this um, marvelous letter that um, my good, my dear friend uh, Mikhail Zygar, who was one of the founders of the the one independent television network in in Russia called uh, Dojd TV Rain, Rain like coming from the heavens above. Um, but uh, Mikhail is a fabulous journalist, um, and, and he's very particularly interesting because his father was, believe it or not, a colonel in the GRU, trained in the FSB. GRU was military intelligence. And uh, he was a, he was, a, he was an officer in the military intelligence, which is t- closely related to the FSB or the KGB. Before that, he was trained at the KGB Academy. And and frankly, they haven't had a lot to say with each other for years. Um, and and uh, it was only um, uh, over the last weekend he discovered that, um, in fact, he, well, first of all, he had started a, a a petition campaign, and he had over a million votes on the sig- uh, signatures on this letter condemning the war, war no more. And many of them were from very senior Russian journalists. It was uh, one from the uh, a Russian Nobel Prize winner, um, some extraordinary people, but a million, a million people, like that, including thousands of journalists. 
at any rate, um, he was apparently targeted by his father and his father's people. And uh, the word was that if he didn't get out within two hours, uh, and within two hours, the, the FSB was going to come for him and charge him with treason. Treason, that kind of treason in Russia, carries a 20-year prison sentence, which is basically a death sentence in a Siberian prison. So he left. He fled uh, with basically the clothes on his back and a suitcase and leaving his whole family behind, his wonderful daughter and uh, his ex-wife, who's still a great friend, um, and went racing off. I, I'm, I'm not at liberty to say where he is now. He is safe. Uh, he's in Europe. Um, he's still trying now desperately to get his family out. Um, but all of this because he, he, um, he dared to go up against the Kremlin hierarchy and the decisions of Vladimir Putin. And, and that is what is just so outrageous in all of this, that there can only be one line, one statement, one position, and it's Putin's. And, um, and I think, in, 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 again, in the long run, or even in the medium term, hopefully, this is a very brittle kind of concept that I think will eventually break uh, the Russian state, certainly break the Russian hierarchy and, and the Kremlin. And I think at some point they're going to have to, they're going to, have to buckle. Well, David Andelman, uh, veteran foreign correspondent for CNN, has been our guest today. What a pleasure it is to talk to you and traverse the globe a, a bit with you and, and all of your knowledge and experience. The book, again, A Red Line in the Sand Diplomacy Strategy and the History of Wars That Might Still Happen is available. We'll put links up to where you can find that. You will get up-to-the-minute information on David Andelman's Andelman Unleashed, which we will also link to. David Andelman, thanks for your time again. Um, check back with us, please, because uh, we'd love to stay on top of this as you're doing the same. I am I am always at your disposal. You have a wonderful uh, uh, podcast and a, a wonderful audience, and it's a great privilege to be with you always. Thank you. I will th- thank you, sir. My thanks to CNN's David Andelman. Hopefully today's show will give you a sense of world events, specifically around Ukraine, but the national security aspects our place here and what is going on. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please be safe. And remember, let's stand with Ukraine. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Until next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.